This archived broadcast of Janet Mefford Today is brought to you by Affirm Films' Show Me the Father. The creators of War Room and Courageous, the Kendrick Brothers, explore fatherhood through five true stories. Show Me the Father, rated PG. Parental guidance suggested in theaters September 10th. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Thank you so much for joining us again. In August 2019, the New York Times launched the 1619 Project, putting the alleged date of our nation's true founding at the year that slaves were brought to our shores from Africa. Now, under the guidance of curator Nicole Hannah-Jones, the project asserted that, quote, out of slavery grew nearly everything that has truly made America exceptional, its economic might, its industrial power, its electoral system. Now, of course, that wasn't true. Many historians and scholars strongly critiqued the 1619 Project for its flawed thesis and many other false assertions that it made. And the New York Times even ended up issuing a very tepid clarification in response. But that did not kill off the 1619 Project because now it's in a shocking number of classrooms across America, even indoctrinating second graders. We're going to talk about it today with Dr. Mary Graybar. She's a conservative commentator, historian, resident fellow at the Alexander Hamilton Institute for the Study of Western Civilization. She's out with a great new book called Debunking the 1619 Project, Exposing the Plan to Divide America. And Mary, it's great to have you with us again. How are you doing? Good. Well, thanks for having me again. Thank you so much. So when the 1619 Project came out, as I mentioned before, and as you know, many historians and scholars debunked it, what was your initial reaction when you got a hold of this and read through it and saw what the New York Times was trying to put out there to get people to get on board with this idea of a slaveocracy? Well, it was outrageous. Uh, Clearly, uh, you know, on on the first reading, you see that it is inspired by hatred of this country, by bitterness, Um, and it is propagandistic, it's uh, emotional, it's intended to inspire anger. Uh, And as you look at it more closely, you see just the huge gaps that are there, the misrepresentations, the distortions, uh, the outright falsehoods. And um, so I I looked at it and I, I was I was shocked and I was further shocked when I learned that it was being put into schools. I mean, the ink had barely dried on the magazine and it was being shipped out. Yeah, you're right about that. And it was kind of shocking, too. I remember there was a a piece in Politico from Leslie Harris, who's a Northwestern history professor, who said that Mm -hmm. she had given advice and the Times published the incorrect statement about the fact that patriots fought the American Revolution in large part to preserve slavery in North America. So apparently they went ahead with stuff that they had been told by historians wasn't even true. So obviously there was a propaganda idea driving this thing in the first place. Yes, it is very obvious. And the uh, New York Times and Nicole Hannah-Jones continue to shrug off and ignore uh, historians, multiple historians who have critiqued various aspects of it. Uh, She is known for criticizing, you know, for uh, insulting people, anyone who dares to, uh, you know, point out any errors. I mean, she is not a historian. She's a journalist, a race journalist, and that has 
her modus operandi, Mm -hmm. but she refuses to take any kind of criticism or correction, and it's the same thing with the other writers in the project. Yeah, didn't you say there were only four historians out of, what was it, about 34 contributors? I mean, that's lame. You you should not be taking on some gigantic American history project and only have four historians, none of which you say really even had any sort of expertise on the history of slavery in the first place. That's correct, yes. And, um, yes, so that throws into question, you know, uh, there are 17 literary works and these are being taught as history. So these are made-to-order poems or prose pieces. I don't know what you call them. I taught English, and I, I can't categorize what genre they're even in. They're these surreal um, stream-of-consciousness narratives that inspire anger against white people. And this is being taught to elementary school students as history or social studies. It's absurd. Yeah, it is. And widespread. Tell people a little bit about the the breadth of the curricula that is now going out into the public schools. Well, yes. So it starts off with, uh, you know, it starts off with kindergarten through uh, 12th grade. It's also been put on reading lists at the college level, campus-wide reads, uh, you know, after the summer of rioting last year. uh, All these, you know, administrations suggested these reading lists, and it was at the top of it. Um, And so this is a history that's rewritten from 1619 to the present, and everything that is bad to this day, all the inequities, if there are disparities statistically speaking, in terms of economic success, uh, family stability, uh, death rates, and so forth. It's all attributed to what happened in in 1619 when that first ship arrived with the Africans. Yeah, it's just shocking because even the fact that the New York Times had to go back and clarify, you know, as I said before, it was kind of a lame clarification, but at least they gave a little bit of a clarification because they got so much pushback. But this goes forward into the classrooms. Now, going back a little bit, let's talk about some of the most egregious errors that were part of this original 1619 project. What would you point to as the most horrible things that were being taught or initially were in these essays when they first came out? Well, I would um, point uh, to her essay uh, where she says that the Africans who came here were kidnapped from Africa. Uh, They were leading lives of domestic bliss. And uh, she implies that it was the Europeans that went into the, uh, you know, hinterland and, you know, snatched up, attacked African families who were doing nothing um, and brought them back here. And that is absolutely false. Um, It was the African chiefs who first attacked the other villages and enslaved each other, sold them to middlemen, and then sold them to the Europeans. She says this is This slavery here was unlike anything that had happened in the world before. Hmm. Um, (laughs) Slavery is, I think, probably the oldest institution we have. We know about the oldest profession. Um, Slavery is probably the oldest institution. 
We don't even know when it began. As far back as we can go in history, we know there has been slavery. It has existed in all places of the planet, and it has been condoned and practiced by the major religions. And so it is ubiquitous. It is universal. Um, but she presents it as a solely American uh, practice. Um, what other things? Uh, Jefferson. Jefferson never wanted to abolish slavery. That is absolutely wrong. He did not say, okay, you are free and go forth, um, as she pretends he could have done. But he did for his entire life to his dying days express his frustration with slavery and figuring out a way to end it peacefully. Um, there's another essay in the 1619 Project that takes off on the this uh, neo-Marxist school called The New History of Capitalism, and that maintains that all the wealth um, and the power that this country has acquired is based on slave labor. <sighs> A number of economic historians have attacked it for innumeracy. <laughs> These historians don't know how to do math. And <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it, the list just goes on and on. It, it, you know, one of the difficult things was, you know, okay, uh, where do I stop? Yeah. You know, I've got to get the book out. It's right. just... Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You just debunking and debunking and debunking because there's so much to debunk there. But the things that you've just mentioned definitely warrant further discussion. And I want to get into some of these, along with the clarification that originally came out from The New York Times addressing the passage in question, stating that one primary reason the colonists fought the revolution was to protect the institution of slavery. I want to get into that when we come back. Dr. Mary Graybar with us, debunking the 1619 Project is her book. We'll be back on Janet Meffer today. Ask yourself, what do you pay for health care? Are you single? Do you pay more than $199 a month? Are you a couple? Do you pay more than $299 a month? Do you have a family? Do you pay more than $399 a month? Yes, you can serve the entire family with health care for only $399 a month with Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance. So your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals. Sign up at any time of the year. Pick your own doctor and hospital. Find out more at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. Or call now, 855-565-2561. That's 855-565-2561 or libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. This is Janet Mefford for Bible League International. 
Aria lives in the Middle East in a radical Muslim family. She accepted the invitation of a Christian friend to attend a weekly Bible study and receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. She took her Bible study booklet home, hiding it in her room before her mother found it and gave it to her father. He severely beat young Aria and called the authorities to report her as an infidel. They took her to a remote cell where they assaulted her and the Christian friend before letting them go. These two women didn't grow bitter. They grew bold, and together they've seen hundreds come to Christ in the Middle East, where Christians are urged to support new believers. You suddenly realize how critical it is for Christians not just to assume God will look after their brothers and sisters who have converted from Islam, but that they will be prepared to walk with them. Help send God's word to believers like Aria. One Bible is only $5, and a limited time match will double your gift. Call 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD, or there's a Bible League banner at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. We are so glad you're here and glad to welcome Dr. Mary Graybar, resident fellow at the Alexander Hamilton Institute for the Study of Western Civilization. She's out with a tremendous new book. It's called Debunking the 1619 Project, Exposing the Plan to Divide America. And as you said before, Mary, there are so many things to to criticize in the 1619 Project, things that are just assertions that are simply not true. And historians and scholars have pointed it out. And yet here, the 1619 Project is getting its propaganda into so many of our classrooms across America. Now, going back to this point that you raised about Thomas Jefferson, Thomas Jefferson gets it a lot from this crowd. When when mm. they are making assertions about Thomas Jefferson never wanting to abolish slavery, what are they misunderstanding? What history are not, they not taking into account in a little bit more detail? Because that's a point that they really kind of stress. And people often say, well, I don't remember all of this stuff about Thomas Jefferson. I went through Monticello once, but that I, I don't remember a lot of what Jefferson said or didn't say. Yeah, well, it, it seems that they are very ignorant about Jefferson's life and is certainly unsympathetic to the circumstances that he was faced with. Um, Jefferson was born into the gentry. You know, his father uh, acquired some wealth and uh, he was born into a family that had slaves, you know, hundreds of slaves. And these are people that ha- had to be taken care of. They were seen as people, not as subhuman, as Nicole Hannah-Jones insists. No one thought of them as subhuman. And Jefferson's earliest memory from the age of two or three was being carried on horseback by a trusted slave. (laughs) You know, um, you, of course, would not entrust your two-year-old to a subhuman on horseback. But here he was, his father died when he was 14 years old. When he was 21, he was, uh, you know, assigned the care of his mother's uh, you know, estate, and he was given slaves of his own. You couldn't just, you know, set these people free and say, okay, now go out and apply for a job. Yeah. It wasn't that way. The manumission laws were very strict um, for a long time. Uh, they had to leave the state, and um, you had to put up a bond for them. You were responsible for them. They couldn't become wards of the state. And so he was faced with this situation personally where, you, you know, he and also he wasn't he, he wasn't very good at making money. So he was continually strapped for money. And so his worry was, you know, how to feed them, basically, in, instead of freeing them. And uh, and he had tried, um, you know, in 
uh, the Declaration of Independence, there's this long passage, a complaint about uh, the imposition of the slave trade. Uh, England was trying to, you know, promote slavery and sending over slaves. You know, of course, some of the plantation owners wanted to buy them, but many others did not. And so this was something uh, that that was a sore spot uh, between, you know, uh, the colonies and the mother country. So, and, you know, in his Constitution of Virginia, he tried to outlaw slavery. But the problem was... Uh, that Jefferson faced these political realities. You had the vested interests of the plantation owners. You have this group that wants slavery. And in order to, you know, unify and declare independence, you have to make some compromises. I mean, that's the political process. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, so this this is something that was not really expounded upon in the 1619 Project, but it's important. I mean, this kind of points out, doesn't it, the ignorance of a lot of Americans about history. It must frustrate you because if, if kids and even adults understood American history better than we probably do, we would have been able to read that and, and right away say, well, wait, wait a minute, that's not actually what I was taught in school. I mean, there are certainly Americans who can do that. But now you've got all these kids who don't have any background in actual American history knowledge who are getting all this propaganda. And how in the world are they supposed to fight it off with any semblance of understanding of American history if this is all they're being taught about American history? Yes, you're absolutely correct. Um, And it's not as if, you know, they're getting the 1619 Project and they have good textbooks. I went through a couple of the major textbooks, one by Pearson, and they repeat this lie or something that is just a rumor that Jefferson fathered all six of Sally, his uh, slave, Sally Hemings's children. And there is no evidence. There has been no proof of that. And I go into the detail about the DNA testing, but it's just repeated. Um, you know, another falsehood of the 1619 Project is that Jefferson never freed any of his slaves. He freed several of them. Um, you know, Robert Hemings, you know, she says, you know, he would never uh, uh, enjoy the kind of freedom that Jefferson was describing in the Declaration. Well, you know, he was freed at the age of 32. Just simple things like that. Right. But what kids are taught through our textbooks, which are already biased, are just going to be exacerbated by the 1619 Project, which has, you know, highly inflammatory language um, that is intended to manipulate the emotions of those who are young and naive who don't have a base of knowledge. It's really a tragedy. How can parents fight back at their local school district level? I know in some areas of the country, they're not allowed to teach this curriculum in the schools, but in a lot of parts of the country, parents might be sending their kids to schools where they're going to get this garbage. What can they do about it? Right. Well, what they're going to be facing is teachers and administrators saying, well, the 1619 Project is the truth and Students need to learn the truth about slavery. Well, it is not the truth. It is factually wrong in so many ways and in so many places. And I think the best way to fight against these educrats is to fight back with the facts. They pretend that 
you know, parents and you know, citizens and grandparents are ignorant, you know, that they don't have the degrees in education. Well, you know, no, actually, uh, you know, the, the, most people recognize the 1619 project as deeply flawed on a first reading. And I hope that with my book, debunking the 1619 project, they can get the details and they can, uh, you know, refute what is being said about this being truth point by point. Good. And then let the administrators come back. Yes. Well, I mean, that's why people need a resource like this, because a lot of parents say, I don't have the time to do all of the digging and I, it's a little over my head. But if I had a good resource, then I'm armed to go in with the knowledge that I need in order to debunk this 1619 garbage that's being taught to my children. It's it's really wrong that's being done. You know, you think about this and having been a journalist myself, what drives me crazy about it is the New York Times, which is supposed to be this wonderful, you know, gray lady and this this top of the pyramid of American journalism, they put this out in the first place. And then when they were corrected, they didn't even care. Like they don't even care if what they're saying is true because this is activism at the root, isn't it? Yes, it is. And uh, it was revealed that the editor, you know, after the, um, uh, you know, the impeachment of uh, Donald Trump and the Russia collusion fell apart, that one of the things they wanted to focus on was race. And that's how they were going to get President Trump. And so this uh, promotes that agenda. And, um, you know, and they don't care about the truth. it, It really is appalling that they uh, you know, that these are people who have had some of the best historians in the country address many points and just re- refuse to budge and and then put it out. You know, I mean, it's it's one thing to publish something and for adults. And if you want to read it, if you want to buy it, you can. If you don't, don't. But to put it into the schools, to me, that is really it's it's criminal. It's abusive yeah. of kids. It is. It is. I don't think that's an overstatement. I think you're completely on the money about that. Not to mention the fact, Mary, that we fought a civil war that ended with the emancipation of slaves. Is that not a major event in American history that ought to debunk a whole lot of this just on its face? <laughs> well, not if you ask Nicole Hannah-Jones, um, but it, yes, it should. I mean, you know, three quarters of a million Men died in that war. Um, you know what? You know, and I also go into you know uh, what abolitionists did. People gave up their lives in other ways, and uh, you know, she flat out comes out and says, you know, white all white people were oppressors. They liked slavery, even if they didn't own slaves themselves. They enjoyed the benefits. And that's that's just a slur against many good people who disliked slavery. They disliked segregation, and uh, it's a slap in the face. And it's factually outright wrong. It's false. And yes, you're right about the Civil War. We did fight a war over it. Um, you know, it took a while uh, for uh, you know equal rights to come into pl- play, but. Um, you know, give give some credit for what was done. Yeah, that's right. Do you have any high hopes at all for the 1776 initiative to be able to gain some ground? I know that was something that President Trump had some people put together. Where does that stand? 
Well, I, I, I like the project. Um, Bill McClay's book, Land of Hope, is excellent, and it's adapted from that, and I think it's appropriate for uh, students. Uh, you know, we need to inspire confidence in our nation and, uh, you know, introduce facts at, at an age-appropriate level. And I'm glad there are alternatives out there. And I think uh, as people understand and get together and go to school boards and to state legislatures and you know, voice their concerns, I think we can make a difference. Very good. Debunking the 1619 Project. Thank you so much, Dr. Mary Graybar. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. This portion of Janet Mefford today is brought to you by Courageous Legacy. Remastered in 4K and including a new ending, Courageous Legacy, rated PG-13 in theaters September 24th. From Sherwood Pictures, Affirm Films, Provident Films, and the Kendrick Brothers comes Courageous Legacy. Celebrating 10 years of impact on families and fathers, remastered in 4K, and including a new ending and bonus scenes. So where are you, men of courage? I believe every father should step up and answer the call and say, I will. I will. Courageous Legacy. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. In theater September 24th. More information is available at CourageousTheMovie.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. During the pandemic, private health insurance plans were required under federal law to cover the entire cost of medically necessary COVID-19 testing. And a number of states also waived COVID-19 out-of-pocket treatment costs for those enrollees who were fully insured. Well, now, according to the Kaiser Family Foundation, the situation is changing. The foundation says that earlier in the pandemic, relatively few COVID-19 patients would have been billed for their hospitalization because of the voluntary waivers extended by private insurers employers. But they say as vaccines have become more widely available and healthcare utilization has rebounded, health insurers may no longer face political or public relations pressure to continue to waive those costs for COVID-19 treatment. So as more waivers are expiring, more people hospitalized for COVID-19 will likely receive significant medical bills for their treatment. I guess this is no surprise, but very interesting development. We're going to get some thoughts on it now from Matt Bellis, Chief Communications Officer for Liberty HealthShare, a national nonprofit healthcare sharing ministry. Matt, welcome. Great to have you with us again. Thanks for having me, Janet. Always a pleasure to be here. Well, you bet. I guess this is something that is not unexpected. At some point, the benefits run out, or I guess the, the goodwill runs out. But this is kind of interesting. 102 health plans are, I guess, no longer waiving COVID-19 treatment costs. Another 10% of plans are phasing out waivers. Again, we're back to the third-party insurance system. But what are your thoughts on this and this development? Well, it really is a strange situation overall, and uh, and we all have to at least recognize that. But what the real issue here is, is that, one, you would have to have some sort of special situation for your health care to take care of a disease that was unexpected, whose treatment was really unknown. Yeah. You would have to have bureaucrats uh, in their offices 3,000 miles away devising what the scheme would be to take care of these costs for these health care bills. You know, we, we all 
deal with unexpected expenses and unexpected costs on a regular basis. We plan for them. We put money aside for them. If something were to come down the pike, uh, we have the ability to take care of them. Unfortunately, it looks like for the third-party insurers and the third-party payers, they need to have their whole world planned out to the nth degree where they now need government and media and social pressures to take care of these medical expenses or at least have them as a viable uh, expense for their actual plans. Yeah. And it really is unfortunate to have an extraordinary situation like this where it really exposes those types of flaws. Yeah. So so what you're saying, it seems, is they're letting enter into the equation all of these other factors. And it's not merely about people's health care and medical cost. It's it, there, there are all these other factors that go into it and all this bureaucracy that's involved in it. Exactly. It turns out that it's not really about health care at all. It's all about mitigating risk. Yeah. And that's what insurance tries to do. It mitigates that risk where a lot of times they end up either not paying, underpaying, or hospitals try to bill or, uh, or overbill. Uh, so there really is a flaw in the health care system. And COVID-19, I think, has just kind of shown the light on those uh, those problematic areas. Well, right. Well, you and I have discussed quite a few times how Liberty HealthShare is different as a healthcare sharing ministry. You have a very different model from third-party payer system, private health insurance coverage, and Obamacare as well. How has Liberty HealthShare handled the pandemic through your healthcare sharing model? How is it different from the way private insurance has been dealing with it? Well, that was the beauty of how we had set up our guidelines and the way healthcare sharing handles it in total, because we've already worked out these eventualities. We already said that if there's a disease, if there's a, a pressing medical need, our members have that ability to go seek treatment and, and go look for the things that they want to uh, uh, take care of in their lives. Uh, so these are things and eventualities that were already looked after. That's the whole point of healthcare sharing. If it's a urgent medical need that our members actually need treatment and payment for, that's an eligible expense that we look at and say, yes, absolutely. Uh, go take care of that. You're in charge. You're the patient. You're the one guiding and directing your health care in consultation with your doctor, not us. <laughs> We're in, a, in an office building in Ohio. We're not there with you. You need to make those decisions. You need to seek treatment. We, you shouldn't be looking to uh, Liberty HealthShare whenever it comes to uh, working out all the final details of your health. We want to put you in charge so that you have that ability and for a situation like COVID-19, where nobody could see it coming out of left field, yeah. those expenses were already taken care of in terms of eligible uh, eligible costs. Uh, so really, it's a completely different way of thinking about health care altogether. Well, yeah, I'm interested, and, and that is a fascinating point, and I'm interested how the pandemic in general kind of made you think about the importance of having an option like Liberty HealthShare, where you do have a completely different system. Did the pandemic kind of drive home that point that the healthcare sharing model really, at the end of the day, is the better way to go than having to deal with the third-party payer? Well, really, it has to do with options. And where do you have the freedom to make the choices within your health care? 
Uh, and we want to give our members options. We want to give them that freedom back. It's been taken from us that we don't even recognize it sometimes until we're actually looking at it square in the face. Yeah. So many people have had to deal with COVID-19 this year uh, and last year. Uh, and so so many people are confronting their health care systems where they're realizing that they are not in charge. They are the ones uh, adhering to a bureaucrat's whims or even the government's whims when it comes to paying for their health care. So really, we this is about option. It's about choice. It's about freedom. And it's about being a part of a community of people who care within a faith-minded community who are supporting you in your times of need. And that's really the, the big difference that we're looking at here. Yes. Now, when we've talked before about how your members interact with one another, you can pray for other people, you can give them messages of cheer when they're feeling you know, down about a particular hospitalization or medical treatment they're going through. What are you hearing from some of the members that you have at Liberty HealthShare about how they were able to interact with one another, especially during the pandemic? There are so many people within our prayer box. It's a part of our online system that we call ShareBox that have sought prayers uh, and other people's uh, uh, help during this time because it was scary in yeah. many areas. Touch and go. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people, we didn't know how they would react to this disease. So many people suffered. Some, unfortunately, passed away. And there are so many people within our community who have reached out to other members of our community through our prayer box system that allows people to pray, to be there for one another, to send messages of, of cheer and comfort. And it really exposes that need in our lives, that health care is not just about the dollars and cents, and it's just not about getting your, your body, your cells, your, uh, you know, your, your systems back and working together. This really is a matter of the spirit, because it's so personal. It, it is a life and death thing, and so many people could really use that help and support and prayer in those times of need. So that's just one of the aspects that we're so glad to provide and know that in a faith-minded community that we're all uh, praying for one another, looking out for one another, not just uh, uh, financially, but spiritually as well. Well, that's excellent. And when you talk about the importance of having options and having freedom, I know that's another advantage that people can go to their doctors and their hospitals, the ones they want, actually, and they can make sure that they're getting paid. And, and this is another way that people can exercise that freedom in order to make sure that their health care comes first and not all of the you know, the red tape that sometimes comes with a third-party payer system. Yeah, it is very important whenever we have that choice in healthcare that we have a sense of ownership over our bodies and the care of our bodies. Yeah. And we need to have doctors and hospitals who recognize that as well. So we want to make sure that when we're out there looking for those doctors and hospitals, they see that as well. And we treat them as a coach, as a member of the team to help in the care of our health rather than just some mechanic who's fixing a car. Very good. Well, you can check out libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. Matt Bell is with us. Matt, always good to chat with you. Stay well and thanks for being here. Thank you, Janet. All right. Take care. You're listening to Janet Meffer today. We'll be back.
from Affirm Films comes the Kendrick Brothers' Show Me the Father. The creators of War Room and Courageous take moviegoers on a cinematic journey that invites you to think differently about your earthly father and how you relate to God through five true stories. I'm stunned. He's real. He's really out there. And this is really him. This is really him. Show Me the Father. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. In theaters Friday. More information is available at showmethefathermovie.com. Hi, this is Janet Mefford for Preborn. Candace talks about finding out she was pregnant. Thankfully, an ultrasound provided by Preborn allowed her to hear her baby's heartbeat. The sonogram sealed the deal for me. My baby was like this tiny little spectrum of hope. And I saw his heart beating on the screen. And knowing that there's life growing inside, I mean, that sonogram changed my life. I went from just... Candace to mom, thank you to everybody that has given these gifts. You guys are giving more than money. You guys are giving love. Would you make a leadership gift and sponsor a machine today? These life-saving machines cost more than most centers can afford. Your tax-deductible gift of $15,000 will place a machine in a needy women's center and save countless lives for years to come. All gifts are tax-deductible. To donate, call 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. From Sherwood Pictures, Affirm Films, Provident Films, and the Kendrick Brothers comes Courageous Legacy. Celebrating 10 years of impact on families and fathers, remastered in 4K, and including a new ending and bonus scenes. So where are you, men of courage? I believe every father should step up and answer the call and say, I will. I will. Courageous Legacy. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. In theater September 24th. More information is available at CourageousTheMovie.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. It's kind of interesting. I've been reading this book by the name of Radicals Chasing Utopia by Jamie Bartlett. It's not a Christian book, but I picked it up, I don't know, a while back. It's been sitting around on my shelf and I finally decided to read it a few days ago. And it's very interesting. The whole premise of it is looking into the rogue movements trying to change the world. Again, not not from a Christian perspective, but they go through talking about people in the transhumanist movement wanting to do mind uploading and all that creepy stuff and get into AI. And then they talk about and anti-Islam movements in Europe, and there was a chapter on the Psychedelic Society, these people who are now trying to emulate Timothy Leary and take psychedelic drugs to try to have a spiritual experience. So I'm reading this, and then these stories pop up, and this is quite interesting. There has been an ongoing fascination, as it were, probably since the Tower of Babel, that man believes on some level he can become God. And these days we talk about utopianism, and there are all kinds of different groups out there who want to either prolong life or become deity in some way or become one with the universe or explore outer limits of this and that. And there are all these kinds of grandiose dreams that people have, but some of them are truly dangerous for various reasons. Communism obviously would come to mind. The idea that all we need to do to create the perfect utopia on earth and make everything equal for everybody is to radically change society. Well, we know how that turned out for communism. Now come these stories. This is quite interesting. Amazon ex-CEO Jeff Bezos, according to a new report, is looking 
to space for humanity's future, but also trying to extend humanity's lifespan here on Earth. There's a new report in MIT's Technology Review, CBS writing about this, saying that Bezos is one of several investors in Altos Labs, a Silicon Valley startup working on technology to rejuvenate cells and potentially prolong life. And this startup also counts Yuri Milner, a Russian tech billionaire, Altos Labs is working on what's called reprogramming technology, a method of reverting adult specialized cells into stem cells, which have the potential to turn into any kind of cell. Sounds creepy. Scientists say reprogramming holds great potential to treat vision loss, spinal cord injuries, brain injuries, and other age-related bodily degeneration. In one study, the Salk Institute biochemist Juan Carlos Ispuzia Belmonte declared it the elixir of life and said that aging is not an irreversible process. Let's see. Man is appointed once to die and then the judgment. <laughs> did, did you miss that part? So this is kind of a utopian ideal here. And it says stopping disease and prolonging life seems to be a key interest for Bezos. In his 2020 letter to Amazon shareholders, he quotes extensively from Richard Dawkins, the Richard Dawkins, the British evolutionary biologist and famous new atheist, writing to his investors, quote, staving off death is a thing that you have to work at. If living things didn't work actively to prevent it, they would eventually merge into their surroundings and cease to exist as autonomous beings. That is what happens when they die. That's not what happens when they die. It's not what happens when they die. You know, you sell a few books and you think that you're God on some level. So let's set that aside. Second utopian story comes from the New York Post, and this involves a former Walmart executive and e-commerce billionaire, Mark Lore, who wants to build the world's first woke city from scratch. Very interesting. Lore has unveiled plans for his utopia called Telosa from the ancient Greek word telos, meaning highest purpose. He said in a promotional video, the mission of Telosa is to create a more equitable, sustainable future. That's our North Star. We are going to be the most open, the most fair, and the most inclusive city in the world. Key to the city's plans is Lore's economic vision called Equitism, in which the land upon which the city is built will be donated to a community endowment. Residents, in turn, own their homes on the land and are enriched as home values increase, according to the project site. And after a period of hypergrowth, residents can buy the land from the community endowment. Doesn't that sound fascinating? If you went into the desert where the land was worth nothing or very little and you created a foundation that owned the land and people moved there and tax dollars built infrastructure and we built one of the greatest cities in the world, the foundation could be worth a trillion dollars, Lord told Bloomberg Businessweek. And if the foundation's mission was to take the appreciation of the land and give it back to the citizens in the form of medicine, education, affordable housing, social services. Wow, that's it. The city is meant to take on what Lore views as the U.S.'s biggest challenge, the rapidly growing wealth gap, which he said is going to bring down America. Hmm. Equitism is inclusive growth, says the website. While the current economic system is a growth engine, it has led to increasing inequality. Do these people understand economics? Do they understand the basic economic systems that have been tried throughout history? 
And have they noticed why it is that the American economy worked in ways that other kinds of economies say, oh, I don't know, socialist economies have not worked? You know, the five-year plan in the old Soviet Union, not such a great working system. So they're going to have this woke system. Everything's going to be sustainable and it's going to be awesome. And they want to commit to some place, but they're thinking about different places. Nevada, Utah, Arizona, Idaho, Texas, maybe Appalachia. We'll see what happens. But utopia is such a crazy thing. It's as if the Bible is right, isn't it? That we have eternity in our hearts. There is something within us that understands that something is wrong. Fundamentally, the creation testifies to the existence of the creator, but we can't seem to fix it. I think about this. I think we can get to the moon. We can have an international space station. We can get down to the Mariana Trench in the ocean, the the bottom of the ocean, but we still can't fix the problem of lying. We can't fix the problem of stealing. We can't fix the problem of adultery. It just doesn't happen. Why is it we're able to make so many technological advancements and educational advancements Although the way academia is going right now, I don't know if we're really going in an advancement direction at the moment. How is it, though, that we can make so much progress in so many areas, but when it comes to the sin problem, it's like we're helpless because the Bible is true. And I was thinking about this issue of wanting to, number one, prolong your life as long as possible on earth. And I'm thinking to myself, why would you want to be here that long? I, I don't have a death wish and I think you should eat right and you should take care of yourself and you should live as long as the Lord allows you to live and that's all well and good, but I can't imagine wanting to be in an eternal state or a 200-year-old person living here on earth. I, I, I want to go home. I mean, and this is the hope of the gospel. I, I want to go home. Heaven is my home. And I think of Hebrews 11. This is such an incredible chapter of the Bible, and it really is worth rereading if you haven't read it lately. But as we know, it starts out, now faith is confidence and what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. And it goes through, by faith, Abel, and by faith, Enoch. This part in verse seven, by faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. See, we understand from God's word that the world is passing away. By faith, Abraham made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents as did Isaac and Jacob who were heirs with him of the same promise for he was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. And it talks about Sarah as well. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God for he has prepared a city for them. We don't need a woke city out in the desert. All these utopian dreams may sound great on paper and especially if you don't know the Lord, that may be the best you can come up with. But boy, it is just so lame compared to what awaits us as those who belong to Jesus Christ. 
If your sins are forgiven, if you have trusted in Christ as your Lord and Savior, then there is a city that awaits you. In my Father's house, Jesus said, are many mansions, and I go to prepare a place for you. That's where our destination is. That's the perfect city. And it's not going to be woke, praise the Lord. It's not going to be woke, but it is going to be glorious because Jesus Christ will be there and we will see him face to face. And I don't know about you, but in these dark days, that gives me so much more hope than any utopian scheme anybody can come up with here on earth. I'm for progress. I'm for making life better to the extent possible, but I'm not counting on this earth to fulfill my utopian dreams. My paradise is heaven with the Lord Jesus Christ who loved me and gave his life up for me and for you too. Praise his name. This Hour Janet Meffer today is brought to you by Affirm Films' Show Me the Father from the Kendrick Brothers, the creators of War Room and Courageous Explore Fatherhood through five true stories. Show Me the Father rated PG, parental guidance suggested in theaters this Friday. God bless you guys. Thanks so much for being with us again and we will see you next time right here on Janet Meffer Today. Today.